Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey of all animals. It's Palm Sunday. We don't have the palm branches up here. The kids, you know, waving those around, at least out here. Maybe they're doing that back there tonight. But this is almost 2,000 years ago. And as Jesus entered Jerusalem in direct fulfillment of this prophetic passage long before he was born in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, there was an expectation. The people had a clear expectation. This was the triumphal entry of the king. And what they expected him to do was to, the the Jews in Jerusalem, was to crush their enemies and their oppressors and to install a political system to, to get vengeance, basically to kill all of the Romans in an act of vengeance and to install himself as political king of a political kingdom. This was the expectation of those who were crying out, Hosanna, of many of them, at least. And it was the expectation of Jesus' disciples as they asked to be on his side in the kingdom. They were asking to be on his side in a political, earthly kingdom that they expected him to install right away as he's entering into Jerusalem. And what happened was so different. What happened was so, so different. Jesus subjected himself to the cruelest of torture, And he died and suffered in the most lowly way on a cross next to the most lowly criminals who were being executed for their crimes. This is what Jesus did. What a shock to those who expected him to install himself as king. And as he entered the city, I'd like to read Luke 19, just Jesus' heart as he's entering the city and all of these expectations for this political kingdom are around him. And he hears the people's praise and they're shouting. But as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. If you'd known what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The ultimate hope of most and many, if not all, of those surrounding Jesus was in politics, it was in people, it was in human strength and might, but Jesus wept because he knew what ultimately would bring them peace. And it was himself and what he would do. And that is what he did on the cross. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel. The gospel, as we've discussed these last four weeks, is the true story of Jesus' identity as Messiah and Lord, his death on a cross as the sacrificial offering for the sins of mankind, and his bodily resurrection from the dead. Amen. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is what brings us peace. This is what brings the world peace, and this is what has changed so many lives. Okay, so... Last week, we began, we we kind of unveiled this gospel tool that we want to encourage you guys to use as we communicate and share about what Jesus has done as we share the gospel message with others. And you can find that uh, in the future. We'll we'll make printed copies, but for now, you can find it at awakencolumbus.com slash the gospel. And I would encourage you, if you've got a smartphone that has service down here, um, basically, if you have Verizon, (laughs) then you can look it up on your phone right now. If you have AT&T or some weird other thing. It might not work. Um, AwakenColumbus.com slash the gospel. Real quick, I want to show you how you can make this almost like an app on your phone and how you can make it an icon on your home screen so that when you're in a conversation, you're in a spiritual conversation, you're talking with someone, there's an openness there, there's a willingness there. You don't even have to fumble through a website. You can just open up your phone and you can make it the very first thing Maybe you've got your olive tree or version Bible, and then right next to that, you've got the gospel right there. You just click on that, and you can go through these gospel truths. So the way that you do that, this is for you iPhone users, and I believe there's a way to do it for other smartphone users, but um, for the sake of time, we're only going to go through one way. And, and if you've got an Android, you think you're smart enough to set your own phone up anyways, you can probably figure it out. <laughs> um, For you iPhone users who want everything handed to you, this is being handed to you. (laughs) All right, so if you you go to that website, awakencolumbus.com slash the gospel, right there you'll see this little thing, the first panel there, the red circle, 
you know, the thing with the arrow over that, I don't know what it's called, but click on that, and then uh, it'll bring up this list of things that you can have it do, and then add to home screen. You can add it to home screen, and then you can name it whatever you want, and it will add it to your home screen. And it'll be there just like an app on your phone, and you can click on it and use it just like that anytime um, in the blink of an eye. So we would encourage you to do that. We want people to be using this to give feedback so that we can make it more clear, so that we can improve it over time. And we believe this will be really helpful for us as a community we seek to engage people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's that. Um, as we go through this tool, just to refresh, the, the, the way this tool is meant to work is it, it goes through uh, to really two things. One is the, uh, the, the meta-narrative or the overall narrative of Scripture, which gives us a lot of context up until the time of Jesus' resurrection. It, it doesn't go past that, but it goes up to that point from creation to the cross and, and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, number one, and that helps with context to understand the gospel. And then number two, it goes through the simple gospel message, the identity of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. And then it also gives people an opportunity to respond, and that's what we'll get to here in a moment. So the, the uh, two questions that you can ask, and this is just a very simple way of communicating the gospel to someone. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be the most eloquent person. You just have to take a step of faith. Take a step of faith and trust that God can use you. He can use you to get the gospel out and he can use his word communicated through you. So the two simple questions, and you can put, certainly put these in your own words and I would expect you to do that. But number one, going through each panel, what do you understand this to mean? What do you understand this to mean? Engaging the person, helping them to understand and ask questions. And oftentimes, they will repeat back something that the passage clearly does not mean. So one, just one thing you can, and you certainly can chime in and, and challenge them, but just a very simple thing that you can encourage them to do is say, well, why don't you, can you take a look at that again? Why don't you take a look at it again? I, I remember hearing from a guy who would do that like 25 times sometimes. This was his method. He would go through some, some verses uh, of the New Testament and the book of Romans and, and what, what does this mean? And the person would some, say some crazy thing that clearly doesn't mean. And he'd just say, well, why don't you take another look at that? And he'd just keep doing it. <laughs> he'd just keep doing it and doing it and doing it until finally they got it. So I don't know that you need to be as obnoxious as that gentleman, but that is something that you can do. Um, but not moving on until you've discussed the, the, the clear and true objective meaning of the particular text that's uh, on, these, on these panels. And the second question, so question one, what do you understand this to mean? Uh, question two, what, if anything, is confusing or difficult for you to believe about this? Now, this is not a question that you need to ask with every single idea or panel. Um, you, you might choose a couple or a few just to make sure that you're having a dialogue and good communication and, and the person that you're speaking to is engaged and feels like they can contribute to the conversation and wrestle with these ideas, ask all the questions that are on their heart. And so again, you can put that in your own words and go through this tool in a very simple fashion. So last week, we went through creation. And uh, we, we, we read through these verses in Genesis that talk about how God made the world. He created mankind in his image and he made the world a very good place. And then we went through sin. And this does two things. Number one, it continues the narrative, the story of what has happened in our history. And it explains why the world is the way that it is. Why is the world broken? Why is there such terrible things that happen every day, all the time? Why do people hurt each other? It explains that as a part of the narrative of what's happened in our history, the history of, of God creating and, and working with human beings. But then also, it helps people to understand that this is a personal problem that needs solved. Sin is not just a problem in the world, it is a problem in my own heart. In fact, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. This is the consequence that every single one of us will face because of our sin against a holy, perfect, righteous, just God. We will, we will all die. And after that, there is judgment. And that's not made explicitly clear in these verses, but it is dozens and dozens of times throughout the New Testament. 
that there is death and there is judgment. That's kind of where we got to last week. Um, And this is what I call the bad news before the good news. Uh, And that is sin. And it's one of the hardest things, I think, for people in our culture to understand. But encourage the person you're you're, uh, speaking to, just stick with me here. Stick with me here. But it is crucial to understand human sin and what that means in order to understand the gospel. It's crucial. This is a must. This is a must. We, we cannot understand why Jesus died and what that means without understanding our own, uh, our own guilt before God and our own sin. Okay, so moving on from there in this story, uh, we get into the promise. And actually, we maybe did get here last week. Um, and this gives us three prophetic passages in the Old Testament, long before Jesus was born, that begin to talk about what God is going to do about the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in our own hearts. From the very, very beginning, he promised that he would come and solve our problem. And so I think you want people to understand this as we go through the narrative that Jesus was not born randomly at some random time and in some random place. But this is part of the overall story of how God has been working with human beings from the very beginning. In Genesis 3, you see this. The sin entered into the world, and and there's this curse and these horrible things happening. And yet, even in Genesis 3, which we didn't include here because we felt it maybe a little confusing without really explaining, there's this promise given that a Savior is going to come and crush the serpent's head. So these verses can uh, help give context to what God is, is going to do as the story continues. So again, with this panel, reading the verses, what do you understand this to mean? And is there anything that's confusing about this? Is there anything you don't understand or don't believe about this? And then we get into the life of Jesus. At just the right time, in just the right place, fulfilling all of the glorious prophecies that came long before the birth of Jesus, he was born. And perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, uh, with the verse that that, uh, precedes it, that's often not shared with it, John 3, 16 and 17. For this is how God so, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. So again, reading, just having the person that you're talking with read this along with you. What do you understand this to mean? And is there anything that's confusing or that you are struggling to believe with the the truth in this passage or the idea in this passage? There's something so paramount here as we're communicating the gospel. There is culturally, I think specific to our culture, this is very relevant for us, there is an idea of Jesus' mission. There is a Jesus that's out there who's very popular. He's very well-liked, and he came to uh, be just a, a model of kindness and sacrifice and to preach tolerance and to basically tell everyone that they were okay without him. This is the popular Jesus that people, that people love to talk about. And this Jesus is not the Jesus. This is not Jesus of Nazareth. Because Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man, he came to save the world. This was the heart of, of why he came to earth, of why the Father sent the Son, to save the world. We see that in John 3.17. Elsewhere, in 1 Timothy, it says that Jesus came to save sinners. This is why he came. This is, now, he, he, he did so many other things. He did all these miracles, and he taught us by his life and through his literal teaching. And it, his teaching has changed the world. It's changed the way we think. And it's the foundation in so many ways of the good parts of our society and the, the good parts of, of 
many of the good things in the West, a lot of those things come from the teachings of Jesus Christ. But that is not why he came. He did not come as a teacher primarily. He came as a savior. And so when we talk about Jesus' life, it's really helpful to, to help people begin to understand this. And you also, you might share just talking about Jesus, the things that he did, the things that he taught. Maybe you have a favorite story in the New Testament about a, a miracle or a, a teaching of his. And you, you might share that as you engage with someone on the life of Jesus. Okay, so let's keep moving here, getting to Jesus' death. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21. But God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Now, this verse right here, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's one of the reasons that we chose to use the NLT translation for all of these verses. It's a little bit more readable, a little bit more of a, uh, an idea or a thought-for-thought translation in English. And we thought it would be more helpful for younger readers than the NIV. My personal favorite translation of the New Testament, of, of the Bible, is the NIV. But we chose the NLT, um, especially because of 2 Corinthians 5.21. With that said, this is uh, an idea that very few people understand. Many, if not most, in our culture understand that there is a phrase in Christianity that goes something like, Jesus died for my sins, right? This is, this is not a new uh, slogan for most people. But when I'm at this part of the story, most, most, most often when I'm at this part of the story, I'll ask people, what, what does that mean? What do you believe that means, that Jesus died for your sins? Has anyone ever explained that to you? Do you... Do you have any ideas? Or how can Jesus' death 2,000 years ago have any connection to my sins today? And I will tell you, the response I most often, by a wide margin, I most often get is, I, I don't know. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Can you explain that to me? And 2 Corinthians 5.21 begins to explain it. But I love to help people see what Jesus did in becoming a sin offering for us. He became, and this is so shocking, he became guilty of our sin. He literally became guilty of our sin. Our sins were punished and paid for vicariously through him. That means he became on the cross. And I like to say this, and you've heard me say it if you've been to Awaken, uh, as we've uh, communicated the gospel. I like to say this to people. On the cross, Jesus became sin, so he became a liar, a thief, a murderer, a child abuser, if you think of the worst, and I'm saying this to the person I'm speaking with, if you think of the worst thing that you've ever done, if I think of the worst thing, the thing I'm most ashamed of, that I would have such a hard time ever admitting to another human being, Jesus Christ was perfect and then became guilty of that. He did that because he loves you and he loves me. This is why he did this. So I certainly... The same idea. We go through these verses. What do you understand this to mean? Is there anything that's confusing about this? But I think it's very helpful to step in and communicate some of those ideas in your own words. And then we get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, oftentimes we focus so much on the cross when that's so good. We need to focus on the cross. We need to focus on what it means that Jesus died for our sins. But I can tell you from personal experience and hearing others communicate the gospel in our culture that sometimes we forget about the resurrection. Sometimes we forget about the fact Jesus rose from the dead. This is the central event in Christianity, and it is the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is awesome. And we cannot say or believe that we have communicated the gospel truly if we are not proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what the apostles and the early followers of Christ, they died for this proclamation. They suffered and died for the proclamation of Jesus' physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. 
So again, with all the others, this is very simple. Read this together. Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. This was not a resuscitation. He was physically and bodily raised from the dead, resurrected forever. Death no longer has any power over him. Amen. And we will celebrate that with a big old party next week. Um, cannot forget about the resurrection. This is the undoing of death. And this is the great promise that Jesus has invited us to respond by faith and share in his resurrection victory over the grave and to share in the forgiveness of sins through his suffering. Okay, so the last two panels here. This is, the, the, these, the last few panels that we've talked about have been squarely in the gospel realm. That is the identity of Jesus and what he's done, who he is and what he's done. And now we begin to get into the back-end implications of the gospel. Uh, mainly, we've got to do something about it. We have to respond personally to this message. It's not enough to hear it and have it go in one ear and out the other. It's not enough to like it. We have to respond, and Jesus calls us to respond. So uh, this invitation is characterized by Romans 10.9 and John 1.12, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. This is what it means to become a Christian, to become a child of God, not to just identify as Christian on a census or on some form or just come to church, but to actually become, to be adopted into his family as a child of God. John 1.12 and then Romans 10, 9, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the response that Jesus calls to say yes to him, to say yes to what he's done. And it's worded in numerous ways throughout the New Testament. There's not one codified way of, and I think this is for a reason, because Jesus does not want us to have a precise ritual that by repeating a precise phrase, okay, we, we, we repeat the phrase and then we're a Christian. This is not how he laid things out. It's a heart response to believe, accept, and declare. And if you like acronyms, that's bad. Um, <clears throat> which does help me a little bit to remember it. And this, we decided it would be helpful. We thought it would be helpful to, to synthesize the New Testament teaching on a gospel response um, in, in these. So you want to make sure the person you're talking with understands these are not the words of Scripture. This is a commentary on Scripture. Believe that Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins and that God raised him from the dead. Accept Jesus as Savior by asking him or by asking for the forgiveness of your sins through his death on a cross. Trust him to forgive you and to give you eternal life. This word trust is so key. This is the word that I always have used with my own children because I don't need to, conv I, I could tell them anything. If I told them right now that uh, Santa Claus is coming to town, they're gonna believe that because they believe the things that I tell them. They're, they're small children. They, they believe the stories I tell them about Jesus. I'm not presenting an alter, I, I tell them there's a lot, most people aren't Christians, but I'm not presenting some competing worldview uh, to a six-year-old and having them just choose, hey, you know, you just decide for yourself. Really, it's no matter to me. No, I'm teaching them the truth of the gospel from a young age, but even as young children, they have to trust in the gospel message. They have to put their trust in Jesus. And it's such a helpful word that um, I think can characterize all of this believe, accept, and declare. To, I'm I, I, yes, I believe it, I don't just believe it. And this word faith in the, in the New Testament doesn't mean just cognitive assent, just believe, but it's not less than that. It's more than that. I believe it and I'm going to risk my life on it. I'm going to rely on what Jesus has done for the forgiveness of my sins, for eternal life. And here and now, I'm going to trust him to direct my life and to be the ultimate authority of my life over and above myself. This is what it means to trust in Jesus. So I felt it was important to have that terminology in here, and it's, I think it's a really helpful way to talk to children about the gospel, to help them understand it's not just believe this is true, but are you ready to put your trust in Jesus, 
to forgive you and give you new life. And then declare that Jesus is Lord and that your intent is to turn from sin and submit your life to him. This is what it means to confess that Jesus is Lord. It, it is not just to say out loud that he is Lord and proclaim that to others as well. It's not, just, it's not less than that. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. It is to submit your life to his authority. That doesn't mean you have to do anything. That doesn't mean you have to follow through perfectly because you will not succeed in following through perfectly. But it does mean that as a matter of my heart, I recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus, I want to turn from my legalism, my self-righteousness, or my sin, and follow you as Lord. So we thought this would be helpful to include, and you can just ask someone at this point, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And then, do you want to take the step? If someone's responding to the gospel, and I hope that every person in here has the opportunity to lead someone to Christ over the course of your life. I I, I truly hope that, to, to be a part of that. Not that you do it on your own, certainly you don't, but to be a part of seeing someone come to know Jesus Christ and seeing their life change forever. So grateful for those who share the gospel with me. And then this last um, this last panel here, and that is decision. And we put a little disclaimer here at the beginning. Just there's no formula given to us in the Bible for how to believe, accept, and declare. There's no formula. It's not a matter of these exact words or anything like that. You can just, if you, if you believe and want to accept and declare, then you can communicate that to God from your own heart. You can do that. Uh, oftentimes, though, People don't feel confident or don't feel like they have the words, but they do have the heart. So we put this here. We thought it would be helpful, but we wanted to put a disclaimer as well. And so you can simply lead someone through this heartfelt prayer of believing, accepting, and declaring. And you can use this for your children also. Now, you, you might want to mess with a few things in the wording for your children. I don't know if your children are going to understand self-righteousness, uh, depending on their age. Uh, so you might want to rephrase that slightly. But for the most part, I think this can help you communicate the gospel with, with your kids. And again, that's one reason why we chose the NLT, so it would be accessible to a younger audience. Okay, um, let's move on from that. And I hope that's really helpful to you. I want to take the, the next 20 minutes or so here to talk to you guys about demonstrating the truth and then also the fruit of the Christian worldview. And here's my contention that we ought to demonstrate the truth of Christianity by presenting culturally relevant arguments and evidence. That we ought to do this. Ephesians 2 verse 8 tells us that it is by grace that you've been saved. It's two believers through faith. And this faith is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Even the faith in Jesus Christ that we have as we make a decision for him to believe, accept, and declare, it is given to us by God. We cannot claim it as evidence of our moral superiority. It is a gift from God. But, and I really want to encourage you with this, don't confuse the source of faith with the means that God uses to bring about said faith. Don't confuse the source of it, which is God, God is the, and this is regardless of where you fall on this spectrum of thought of the role of God's sovereignty versus man's decision in the, the role of salvation, regardless of where you fall on that, believers have to concede that faith is from God. It's a gift from God, even our faith itself. But we cannot confuse that with the means that he uses to bring about such faith. God wants to use, this is normally what he does, he uses Christian men and women to communicate the gospel to make arguments and present evidence for the truth of the Christian worldview. Um, If we understand this, I do believe it becomes imperative that we learn to demonstrate the truth of Christianity in a way that's culturally relevant. We, We see this modeled by Paul, the greatest evangelist of the first century. He... It communicated and, and sought to give evidence and arguments for the truth of the resurrection and Christianity by using the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, for Jews who knew and understood and believed in the Hebrew Bible. And then for Greeks, he used Greek reason and logic 
to communicate these some essential truths of the gospel. He was such a master, and you can see this as you read through the book of Acts and see how Paul spoke with people, and I think we can take that as a model. Another thing becomes, I think, clear as we understand this, and that is that there is a difference between knowing and showing the truth of Christianity. We, most of us in this room, we know that Christianity is true because of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit drawing us to God and God giving us faith and we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we know that, that Jesus is Lord and that he rose from the dead and we've seen the power of the scriptures in our own lives. Although arguments and evidence may have played a part in us coming to Christ. But again, we can look to, I think, the example of the Apostle Paul who Think of his testimony. His testimony was unbelievable. He was the most famous persecutor of Christians in the world. He was high up on the Jewish council and he was tracking Christians down to their death. This is how zealous he was. Jesus physically appeared to him, blinded him, told them that he was Lord, told them to go to this guy who would pray for him. He was a Christian and then get baptized. And Paul did all this and then he became the apostle of the Gentiles. Paul does not use this very often in evangelism. If, if I had that experience, that's what I'd be telling. Okay, well, yeah, believe because this happened to me because of my testimony. This is why you ought to believe. Even Paul, who arguably has a stronger, more convincing testimony than I have, didn't use his testimony very often as a means of argument and evidence to convince others. Um, so the way that we know Christianity is true is often not the way that we show Christianity is true. Does that make sense? We've got to be able, and this will help us in our faith too. It really will. It will help bolster our faith to be able to show the truth of the Christian worldview. Now, we can't do this justice in the next 15 minutes tonight, but three steps to demonstrate the truth of Christianity to an unbeliever. Number one, help them examine the truthfulness of their own worldview through sincere and tactical questions. And we talked about this in week one. Okay, what do you mean by that? What does that really, that just random thing you said, that slogan you repeated, what does that really mean? And why do you believe that? What led you to that conclusion? And as you ask those two important questions, oftentimes something will surface that you can graciously challenge and kind of put the burden of proof for the claim that's being made onto the person you're speaking with graciously and lovingly. And what you'll find is oftentimes people have not thought deeply about the most important beliefs that, they, beliefs that they have. And they are latching on to slogans they once heard years ago about the most important questions in life. You'll find that very, very often. Okay, so number two is communicate the gospel. We've been going through this gospel tool. This is a way to just simply communicate the gospel. And number three is to present arguments and evidence for the truth of the gospel. As we do this, and this is how we can funnel conversations effectively. If you want to make a huge difference for Jesus in the way that you talk with others, funnel your conversations to the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, you, can, you want to answer people's objections and talk about them and answer all the questions they have. Ultimately, funneling your conversations to the resurrection of Jesus. Why is that? Because the resurrection is the central truth claim of Christianity. If the resurrection is true then Jesus is Lord. If the resurrection is true, God exists. If the resurrection is true, then we ought to respond. If the resurrection is false, then we, according to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15, ought to be pitied because we have put our trust in a false God. God rose Jesus from the dead. It validates his claims to be Lord and King. If that did not in fact happen, then Jesus is either a maniac or a monster. And so focusing our conversations, not just about all these ethereal ideas about Jesus, but did Jesus rise from the dead is so important. I'd like to show you uh, two videos, and this will be the remainder of, of the rest of the talk tonight. <clears throat> and everybody loves to see a good video, right? These are two videos in a series of 11 videos by an organization called Reasonable Faith. And we'll send a link out to these. Make sure you're on the church email list. Uh, these are really helpful resources. And this, this is just a tiny little snippet of these arguments. But argument number one, and I do believe this helps to funnel a conversation towards the resurrection, 
is uh, to address this objection to God's very existence and the possibility of miracles. We have culturally, especially those who've, especially those who are educated in this room, we have been trained to think like materialists, and that is to think that the physical world is all there is, all there was, all there ever will be, and everything must be explained within this system, this naturalistic, materialistic system. And so if that's true, then the resurrection, no matter what the evidence, it cannot be from God. It cannot be a miracle because miracles aren't possible because God doesn't exist. And only crazy people think that. So these two videos I want to show you, one is just a foot in the door to help explain why it is more reasonable than not to believe in an all-powerful, personal creator God of the universe who's outside of space and time. And the second one is precisely about the resurrection. So we'll watch video number one. I'll talk about it for just a sec, and then video number two here. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God.
Um, and man, I wish we had more time to dive into the Kalam, cosmolog- the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God. But I can tell you, I have gone through, I mean, I can't, maybe a thousand times with individuals um, who don't agree with uh, foundational truths of Christianity. And it's been so helpful for me. So I would encourage you, look that up, watch that video many, many times, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. I promise you, as you engage intellectually, you, your faith in Jesus Christ will be strengthened. It will be strengthened because he, he is the truth. Okay, one more. I want to show you one more video, and this, this will be the close of our time, essentially. And this, this is about the resurrection itself. And it's a version of what's called the minimal facts argument of the resurrection. And that is talking about the facts that even skeptical, historical New Testament scholars agree on. These are non-Christian scholars. These are facts that uh, Bart Ehrman would agree to. Uh, these are facts that probably your New Testament professor at Ohio State, who's, who's likely not a believer, would agree to. Um, and, it's, and just like the Kalam cosmological argument, it's, it seeks to make an argument from uh, some, some very basic premises that most individuals can agree on, and, and uh, I think you'll find it useful. So let's watch this next video. It's a matter of historical record that Jesus of Nazareth died and his body was placed in a tomb. It's also been firmly established that after his death and burial, his tomb was found empty. Various individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive and his disciples somehow became absolutely convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. These are the historical facts. How do you explain them? Down through history, various naturalistic explanations have been offered to explain away these facts. Let's examine the four most popular ones. First, the conspiracy theory. According to this view, the disciples faked the resurrection. They stole Jesus' body from the tomb and then lied about seeing Jesus alive, thereby perpetrating the greatest hoax of all time. However, this theory faces overwhelming objections. It's hopelessly anachronistic. It looks at the disciples' situation through the rearview mirror of Christian history instead of from the standpoint of a first-century Jew. Jews had no concept of a Messiah who would be defeated and executed by Israel's enemies, much less rise from the dead. In Jewish thinking, the resurrection of the dead was a general event that takes place only after the end of the world and has no connection at all with a Messiah. The conspiracy theory also fails to address the disciples' obvious sincerity. People don't willingly die for something they know is not true. An honest reading of the New Testament makes it clear. These people sincerely believed the message they proclaimed and were willing to die for. For these and other reasons, no scholar defends the conspiracy theory today. A second attempt to explain the facts is the apparent death theory. Jesus didn't really die. He revived in the tomb, somehow escaped, and managed to convince his disciples he was risen from the dead. This theory also faces insurmountable obstacles. First, it's medically impossible. The Roman executioners were professionals. They knew what they were doing and made sure their victims were dead before taken down. Moreover, Jesus was tortured so extensively that even if he was taken down alive, he would have died in the sealed tomb. Second, this theory is wildly implausible. Seeing a half-dead man who crawled out of the tomb, desperately in need of bandaging and medical attention, would hardly have convinced the disciples that he was gloriously risen from the dead. As a result, no New Testament historians defend this theory today. A third explanation is the displaced body theory. Perhaps Joseph of Arimathea placed Jesus' body in his tomb temporarily because it was convenient. But later, he moved the corpse to a criminal's common graveyard. So, when the disciples visited the first tomb and found it empty, 
they concluded that Jesus must have risen from the dead. Once again, this theory cannot make sense of the facts. Jewish laws prohibited moving a corpse after it was interred, except to the family tomb. What's more, the criminal's graveyard was located close to the place of execution, so that burial there would not have been a problem. Also, once the disciples began to proclaim Jesus' resurrection, Joseph would have corrected their mistake. So, once again, no current scholars endorse this theory. Finally, the hallucination theory. The disciples didn't really see Jesus, but just imagined that he appeared before them. They were all hallucinating. This theory also faces considerable problems. First, Jesus appeared not just one time, but many times. Not just in one place, but in different places. Not just to one person, but to different persons. Not just to individuals, but to groups of people. And not just to believers, but to unbelievers as well. There is nothing in the psychological casebooks on hallucinations comparable to these resurrection appearances. Second, hallucinations of Jesus would have led the disciples to believe at most that Jesus had been transported to heaven, not risen from the dead, in contradiction to their Jewish beliefs. Moreover, in the ancient world, visions of the deceased were not evidence that the person was alive, but evidence that he was dead and had moved on to the afterworld. Finally, this theory doesn't even attempt to explain the empty tomb. Thus, the four most popular naturalistic theories fail to explain the historical facts. Where does that leave us? Another possibility is the explanation given by the original eyewitnesses that God raised Jesus from the dead. Unlike the other theories, this makes perfect sense of the empty tomb the appearances of Jesus alive, and the disciples' willingness to die for their belief. But is this explanation plausible? After all, it requires a miracle, a supernatural act of God. Think about it. If it's even possible that God exists, then miracles are possible, and this explanation cannot be ruled out. And surely it's possible that God exists so how do you explain the resurrection? Don't you guys love that? Um, I hope those videos are useful to you. I hope that you use, use them for your own personal edification. And as you, one who has staked your life on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, seek to explain and give evidence to others who, who need to know Jesus. Christine Steckel, you guys can come up here. As you guys come up, I wanna just say some final words here about demonstrating the fruit of Christianity. As we demonstrate the truth of Christianity, we must also live for Jesus, submit our lives to him, and show the world a, a small taste of what he's like, a small taste of what he's like by the way that he's transformed our lives. I want to just say four ways from the scriptures that we can demonstrate the fruit of Christianity. One is to love our neighbor, to genuinely and honestly love our neighbor, to love those whom God has put in your life, your physical neighbors, your classmates, uh, the people that you interact with on a regular basis. Number two is to love your enemies. Man, this is even harder. And this is something by the power of Jesus Christ and by his example that we can do. You can love, genuinely love those who oppose you, those who hate you. Number three is to love the church. This is not something we can do on our own. Jesus says the world will know his disciples by our love for one another. As we love, how, how many of you were convinced in the truth of Christianity because you saw something so special in the lives of believers and in the way they loved one another? I know that was huge for me. So we can't do this on our own. We cannot do this work by ourselves. We must do it in genuine loving community. Uh, in, in the church. And I want to encourage you guys with that. And, and I, I believe you're doing a phenomenal job with it. But let's not grow weary and let's not give up. 
but know that just by our love and kindness towards one another, people will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And the last thing here is to trust Jesus for a lifetime. 1 Peter 3.15 says to, to be ready always, to give a reason for the hope that you have. This is to a church of persecuted, struggling, broken Christians who had hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. And that requires that our hope, no matter what trial we go through, no matter what we suffer, no matter what we endure, that our, our hope and our trust is in Jesus Christ for a lifetime. If that is the case, if you, will tr- if you will persevere and stick with it and trust honestly in Jesus, he will use you. He will use you in this gospel work. He'll use you to change other lives and there will be a great and glorious reward at the end when he comes back, amen? Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you so much for the resurrection. God, that you have given us a completely different way to think about life, Lord, and you've given us a hope even in death and even in suffering because you conquered the grave, Lord. Our trust is in you, God. Lord, and I just, uh, just think of the people in your life right now that don't know Christ. You might know them well. They might be in your family. They might be a friend. They might just be that, that person that you've noticed that you've not yet engaged with. Just think of these people. Lord, we pray, God, that the gospel would be in our hearts and on our tongues and that you would use us to preach the gospel message, Lord, and that you would draw these people that are in our minds and on our hearts right now, God, and even those that we've yet to meet, that you would draw them to yourself, God. Lord, draw people to yourself. We submit ourselves to you, God, and and if, if you believe this, if this is your desire, from your heart, pray this to the Lord right now, just like the prophet Isaiah. He said, here am I, send me. He knew there was a message that needed to go out and he said to the Lord, here am I, send me. God, would you help us to pray that and mean that? Here am I, send me. Here we are, God. Use us for your glory that every tribe and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord, would know him, would bow to him, to Jesus be all the glory. Amen.